Hey guys, and welcome back to the Brown Girl White Coat Podcast. My name is Sai, like a sigh of relief, Sai Joshi to be particular. That's my last name if I've ever said it on here. I am a first year medical student and I go to Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And I'm so, so proud to be here in the land of Beyonce and Travis Scott and everything tasty and the Houston rodeo and yeah shout out to H-Town <laughs> so I know there's a good number of listeners that you know just kind of join along with each episode so grateful for this you know little community that's forming here so I just wanted to reintroduce myself and just go over you know what this podcast is really about what you're going to get from these episodes so I am a brown girl in the field of medicine and I'm documenting my journey along the way with every episode so being Indian being a woman it comes with its unique nuances and different experiences that I'm going to have along the way. And I want to provide this realistic perspective on what med school is really like for all of you hopeful pre-meds out there or medical school nerds like me who just need a little extra inspiration. So whether that's catching you up on what I'm learning at the moment, telling you what my term is going, how my term is going, what life is quote unquote really like, and you know what my work-life balance looks like, what residencies I'm looking at, et cetera, et cetera, or whether it's on a different end, interviewing the leaders, movers, and shakers in the field of medicine, I hope that you're joining me every Sunday evening for a new episode. So I'm really excited for this week's episode. It's going to be so, so fun and kind of um, a different direction that I want to take with the podcast. So if you're listening on Spotify, please go ahead and follow to be notified whenever a new episode comes out. Or if you're on iTunes, they have this cool little feature where you can rate and review and that really helps me out. So go ahead and leave a comment. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Tell me what you don't like so much. It's all great. So with all of that out of the way, let's get into today's episode. I'm going to give our guest a bit of an intro, although she really does not need one. So yes, I'm sitting down, as you've seen from the title, with the legendary Dr. Mary Brandt, professor of surgery, pediatrics, and medical ethics at Baylor College of Medicine. And might I add, one of mine and probably all of my peers' favorite professors here. She's a full-time clinician at Texas Children's. She has an active social media presence with her Twitter account that reaches thousands of people, as well as a blog called Wellness Rounds to encourage healthy living among medical students. She's been on Oprah. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Oprah. <laughs> She's been on several podcasts and quoted in articles by Upworthy, The Hill, The Washington Post, and more regarding her stance on gun violence. This episode is going to touch on all of those things, as well as her highly unique experiences being a woman in surgery. So we're going to get to hear all of these things in addition to what advice she has for medical students and kind of just a chill conversation. Um, I'm so excited to be sitting down with her. I can hardly contain myself. So hopefully you guys enjoy the episode. It's really fun. And um, thank you so much for the support. Okay, so I'm sitting here today with Dr. Mary Brandt. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, I'm actually in her beautiful home, um, so thanks for being here. Yeah, it's a great great cup of coffee to share and have a chat, so yes. I'm excited about it too. Okay, great. So we have a great episode planned today. We're going to talk about everything from women in surgery to Dr. Brandt and her personal wellness and what kind of tips she has for us on that. So just to begin, can you kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, about your story? Sure. Well... So I, um, I grew up mostly in Austin, Texas. I spent some time in California and southern France, where mm -hmm. my father was a visiting professor. Um, I went to the University of Texas yes. as an undergrad, um, majoring in Plan 2, which is a liberal arts degree. I strongly feel that that's one of the best degrees to get into medical school with and to be a great doctor with. So I would encourage your... Um, your listeners to think about what they really love that they're majoring in and to make sure they get a truly good general education. So more than just yeah. punching the cards or checking the boxes, that's very important. Yes. Um, I went on from there to Baylor College of Medicine uh, where I finished, actually in three and a half years, we had a, an option to go a little faster if we wanted to and I did. And I spent six months then with Stanley Dudrick, who uh, invented TPN, mm. so I did a nutrition um, sort of mini-fellowship, and then surgery at Baylor, uh, which was an interesting time. Um, we started with 11 in my class and ended with five, wow. so it was a pyramidal system, which no one now knows much about, but 
basically it was constant competition with your colleagues for right. the spots. I was the only woman all five years of my training and um, the third woman ever to finish that training. And then I went on to Montreal for two years for pediatric surgery and came back to Baylor where I've been ever since. That's awesome. So you liked Baylor enough to come back here. I did. I did. <laughs> That's good to hear. Um, can you tell us about how you kind of found your way into medicine itself? You know, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I think part of it was that I was born a premature baby. And so there were yeah. some stories in my family about the pediatrician that saved my life and that sort of became family lore. I suspect that may be the seedling, because there's no one in my family that uh, is in medicine. Um, I know that I had a strong calling, if you will, to help people. So yeah. I, I think uh, originally I was thinking about teaching, uh, which I also think is an amazing career. But I ended up in medicine, and I think it's mostly just because it's where I was supposed to be. Yeah. And you still incorporate the teaching aspect, so. Oh, yeah. I love <clears throat> to teach. Yeah, plenty of opportunities for that. Um, so you talked about how you know, this is something maybe you didn't see yourself always doing. Were there any other options that were, you know, kind of on the horizon except for teaching? Um, I actually, I really saw myself as being a professor somewhere, probably of English or, okay. you know, that would, that would have been the other one. Uh, possibly the ministry, because I was very interested in theology. I've always been interested in theology um, or teaching theology. Yeah. Um, but I think all of that put itself together into one field that, provided everything I needed. So right. yeah, that's awesome. Can you kind of describe like what your typical day looks like a day in the life? Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, well, in general for a pediatric surgeon, which is what I do now, um, we have a combination of clinic time and OR time. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're just in, in, if you're in clinical practice alone, those will be the two components of your day. And it just varies. Um, that will wax and wane depending on the number of patients you're seeing in clinic and uh, the cases that need to be done and the emergencies that come in. So in general, I probably have two and a half days of clinic and two days of OR, give or take. Okay. Um, there's, there's weeks that it's less. If you're in academics like I am, there's also a proportion of your time that's devoted to research and to teaching. And so that all kind of gets meshed together in one big jigsaw puzzle, right. depending on the week. Right. So would you say you have, you know, some free time to like engage in hobbies or anything like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, and, I, and I do think, you know, people talk about time management and time crunch and it, it time, the work will expand to fill the time available. Right. Yeah. So in my mind, it's really not about time management. It's about priority management. Mm. And I, I think people need to reframe that whole concept of time management. Yeah. There's always 24 hours in every day. And it's a matter of what the priorities are. Yeah. And if you talk to almost anyone, they will tell you their biggest priority is their family and friends and their own health. Yep. If you don't have those, the rest of it kind of doesn't matter. Exactly. Yeah. And yet we tend to view that as expendable time because it's much easier, especially if you're kind of a compulsive type A that all pre-meds and med students and doctors are, <laughs> yeah. to make your little checklist of things you need to accomplish in the day and get to midnight and go, oh man, I didn't call my friend. Right. Or I didn't, oh, I missed that birthday party, but I quote unquote had to because yeah. I had this coming up. And I think we just need to rethink that. I think it's, it's priority management, not time management. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I was actually talking on, on that topic um, on a previous podcast episode where I talked about how, you know, carving out time to exercise or call someone at the same time every day, it motivates me earlier on in the day to get something done so mm -hmm. that I can, mm -hmm. you know, do that thing I've planned. Mm -hmm. And then I, n I never miss that, you know, because it's scheduled in there. Yeah. So. The other thing too, is it, it refuels you. So you're more productive and more efficient at the other stuff. You right. know, it's those that are in medical school or medicine will know about the Starling curve. Yep. <laughs> those that are just getting ready to think about starting in medicine may not yet, but you'll learn it in physiology. And the Starling curve basically says that if you put force on a muscle, like in the heart, yeah. it will produce more effort until it tips over yeah. and then it'll produce less. And I think the same is true for studying or for anything that we do that uh, we get sort of immersed in at work. If you yeah. just keep going, just keep going, just keep going, you're going to tip over that Starling curve and not be good at it yeah. anymore. And so you need to build in the time to 
have that muscle relax if you want to be really good. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. I'm going to have to remember that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So kind of going along that theme, is there anything that you would advise to pre-meds right now in regards to that? So I think, you know, all of the habits we develop as human beings, we work on all the time. You don't, but you don't magically go through a difficult college curriculum and medical school and residency and then then start working on who you want to be and why you're doing what you're doing. So it really starts at the very beginning. So the main piece of advice I would give is be passionate about your work Mm -hmm. for sure, but start setting the habits as early as you can to take care of yourself and to keep to be reflective on why you're doing what you're doing because that really sustains you in the long run when things get tough yeah yeah I think um so something that I've started incorporating in my like daily life is like a gratitude journal so I, I I heard about it on some YouTube video you know it just makes you set the tone right for the rest of your day. Mm -hmm. And so I write down like three things I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the day, if something happens, it's so easy to focus on the negative. Mm -hmm. Um, I can look back on that and yeah. Well, the other thing that does is it, and I know people that do it morning and night Mm -hmm. is that if you, as you're going through the day, if you know at nighttime, you're going to write three things you're grateful for, you're actually looking for them during the day. Yeah. And so it changes how you're viewing your day right? because all of a sudden you're, you're aware of positive things that are happening too. Yeah, exactly. Um, so last week's episode was about um, inspirational women. And so it's part of the reason why I've called you here also. <laughs> um, and so I'm kind of wondering, where do you get your inspiration from? Is there someone in particular or something that you think about that you know inspires you? Wow. Um, <laughs> it's a loaded question. It sure. is a loaded question. Wow. <laughs> Um, you know, I think I, I'm an avid reader and I, I read a lot of, um, a lot of things. I, I find a lot of inspiration everywhere. I mean, I, I am a person of faith, but I think that even if you don't define how you view the world that way, um, which is perfectly okay, everybody's got to have a context they live in that's bigger than they are. Yeah. And whether it's just being in awe of, uh, the human body and the anatomy and how beautiful it is, or whether it's being able to go out in nature and appreciate how beautiful that is. You've got to have something that's bigger than you. And so that's, I I guess that would be a piece of advice, but it's also really what inspires me is, you know, I'm just here to kind of do the most good I can for the most people I can as often as I can. I think John paraphrasing John Wesley on that one. (laughs) Um, And, and that's what sustains me is that context. Right. So are there any particular people in your life that kind of fuel that? Gosh, lots. I mean, I'll, it, it can be anybody. I mean, there, there are uh, people in the operating room where I work, the people that actually um, clean the operating rooms. Right. I mean, some of them are just such amazing people. Uh, they're so gentle. They're so kind. I mean, they inspire me. Yeah. And so I think you can find that a lot of places. Yeah, that's awesome. So... We talked a little bit about you being the third person to, or third woman to graduate from the general surgery residency Mm -hmm. at Baylor. Um, Can you talk more about, you know, struggles you faced in residency when it comes Mm -hmm. to that? The parts I remember? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't that long ago. (laughs) No, 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 it's not that. We were on every other night call. So I I was, uh, you know, at some point I am going to work on a book, um, and the first sentence is going to be, I don't remember my internship mm. uh, because I was so sleep deprived yeah. that um, I really, truly don't have a lot of memories. Um, so I have, it's a funny story, but I had a friend who um, some issue came up with his house and I let him live in my house on my couch for like six weeks. And it wasn't too long ago. He said, oh, you remember that time I lived with you? And I had no recollection of that. Oh, my goodness. You know? So. Yeah. So I think we've made a lot of progress in terms of understanding uh, sleep deprivation and and, uh, how residency training should go. Oh, yeah. But now I've lost track. What was your question again? Because now I went off on that tangent. (laughs) We were talking about struggles that you faced in Ah. in residency, being a woman, anything like that. Well, yes, I have lots of stories. And and, uh, I think the main thing about them um, is I really tried to approach most of them with a lot of humor. and. It was a very, very different culture then. 
I wish I could say it's completely different now. It's not. There's still a lot of uh, implicit bias mm -hmm. that we all need to be very conscious of and support each other. I don't think there's as much um, explicit bias as there was, so we've made some progress. Right. But I do think it's still harder for women to achieve particularly leadership roles. Yeah. Um, and we need to pay attention to that. And so the implicit bias, the best example I have or the best story I have is actually from uh, David Foster Wallace's commencement address, which mm -hmm. if you and your listeners haven't read that or heard it, you should. For sure. It's an amazing little piece. But he starts off with a story of two young fish mm -hmm. that are swimming around, and an older fish goes by them and looks over and says, hey, boys, how's the water? And then the older fish swims away, and the one of the younger fish looks at the other one and says, what's water? <laughs> and I think sometimes we forget that we, in the United States in particular, we live in water that is extremely um, privileged for those of us that are white, for men, for people that are abled, that are cisgendered, that are straight, and that's our water. Yeah. And so it's not that anybody wakes up in the morning and says... I'm a racist, or I don't think women can do this consciously, but mm -hmm. they literally can't see the water. Right. And so if we don't um, understand that and start pointing out those implicit biases, we really aren't going to make the progress we want to make. Yeah, that's a great story. I love that. Um, is there anything in particular, maybe a story that you can share from residency? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, at, at the risk of being slightly inappropriate, I'll share this one. Okay. Um, I'm trying to figure out which of the ones that are appropriate. That I can share. <laughs> um, so in the original county hospital that has, uh, where I was a chief resident, um, above OR1 was a dome. In other words, there were it was glass uh, that you could look down in the operating room so you could observe. Yeah. Know, that became the chief resident's office. Mm -hmm. And so the, the day that I transitioned from being a fourth year to a fifth year to a chief resident, I went and got all my stuff out of the locker. And I started up the stairs to the dome, and all the nurses were totally appalled. Mm -hmm. They were like, what do you, what, you can't, because we changed clothes up there. It was yeah. like our, our living space for the yeah. chief residents. And I, you know, in my, I'd already decided I was just going to figure out how to do this, but I was not going to not be in that office, right? right? If I was a chief resident. Of course. So I walked in and of course I was really good friends with the four guys that I trained with. We'd known, we'd been sort of in the trenches for a while together. Right. So I kind of walked in and said, so how's this work guys? And they went, I ah, just put your stuff over there. Mm -hmm. So it was a very closed space. Uh, no one was allowed into that space, even the attendings. Mm -hmm. You had to knock on the door and get permission. It was very traditional. Okay. And so one day um, there's an attending that walk, <laughs> knocks on the door and walks in, and, and we were not exactly the neatest crew because it was pretty busy. So yeah. he looks around, and I have a pair of hose that's like hung mm -hmm. over a chair, and he like kind of like pantyhose. Okay. He he lifts them up and goes, "How's this working up here anywhere? Anyway, guys." And one of my male colleagues said, "Yeah, it's fine, except every time I change my pants, she puts on her loops. <laughs> so those are the magnifying glasses we wear in surgery. So it was, <laughs> and everybody cracked up, and we were like, oh my so it was." You know, so yes, there were some moments of, of uh, transition in learning, but again, it's humor. Yeah. I think the humor makes it work. That's the best way to deal with it, for <laughs> sure. That's really, really good to know. So it was actually last week that I had a friend tell me that she really wants to go into surgery. Um, mm -hmm. And she's kind of nervous about the lack of representation of women in surgery, even now, although things have changed. And so she was, you know, a bit worried about whether she would be treated a certain type of way or anything. And so... I think that humor is the perfect way it to is. kind of deal with situations like that. And I would totally encourage her to go into surgery. It's, it is magnificent. Yeah. And, and I mean, the ability to intervene in a very proactive way to make, to heal someone, to make them better yeah. is such a privilege and such a gift and it, it is hard. And so it comes with some consequences and some costs, but there's no part of medicine that doesn't have that cost. Yeah. And so to me, again, the most important thing is the context you put it in. So if you are completely focused on why you're doing what you're doing, a lot of that stuff is just going to roll off of you. Yeah. And so I, I wish I could say it's not there, but it is. It's everywhere, though. So right. I wouldn't let that hold you back from doing something you love to do. Agreed. Yeah. Was there ever any time when you didn't want to go into surgery or you considered a different specialty? 
Yes, actually, I did my surgery rotation first to get it out of the way Mm -hmm. because I was not going to be a pathologist, a psychiatrist, or a surgeon. Okay. So first rotation. And about three days into it, um, I was, my first attending was David Feliciano, excuse me, um, who was, and it is still probably an example of one of the greatest physicians I've ever seen. I'm Mm -hmm. just phenomenally connected to the patients, brilliant. It was like uh, an an internist who could fix things. So it like blew all my concepts of what a surgeon was out of the water. And it really was like the third day. I still remember this just very viscerally in the operating room, putting on gloves and all of a sudden I went, oh my God, I'm going to be doing this the rest of my life. It was just kind of this epiphany. And then I spent the rest of medical school trying to find anything else. Yeah. Because it was not easy. Yeah. Especially then. And I finally realized that if I kept trying to find something else and I there wasn't something that did that, that I would regret if I didn't make that choice. Yeah. That's really good to hear. Um, oh, okay. I wanted to ask, do you have something that you do before surgeries or like a ritual or anything mm-hmm. like that? I do actually. Um, I think it's very important to center yourself. Um, and that's really mindfulness. And for yeah. if people have not heard about mindfulness, I'm not sure which rock they're under, but <laughs> it's, it is, it is a practice that you just keep practicing. But I use the time that I, um, am washing my hands that I'm scrubbing yeah. to recenter and just be very present and to think about the patient that I'm going to be helping and, yeah. uh, the team I'm doing it with. And I also use my timeout, which is an official requirement in the operating room to be a true timeout to make, right. have the team kind of, I, I try to make a comment about what we're doing in a, in a bigger context yeah. Um, so that people are centered on what we're doing. Got it. Yeah, I really like that. Do you um, do you like listen to music? Or I do. In particular? Is I there do. like a song that you? No, I have a playlist on Spotify. It's actually public if people want it. I'm ML Brandt. Uh, it's called <laughs> OR Mix. Oh. Okay. Um, and the, my rules for my OR Mix is it cannot be twangy country or heavy metal. <laughs> Uh, otherwise, it has to just be interesting. It can't be explicit words either because it's in a children's hospital. Right. Um, but it's music that uh, is not trivial, but also does not distract. And so yeah. I do listen to music, unless it's a stressful operation, and then all of us will turn everything off Got to be, have 100% focus. But I find the music actually helps me focus more. Yeah. And I did that when I studied as well. So if you're someone who studies with music and it helps you, you're probably going to listen to music in the operating room. Right. And likewise, if you can't listen to anything when you study, you're probably not. Right. Because so, all of our brains work a little differently. Yeah. I, I definitely listen to music while I study. It helps me just stay focused. Yeah. It, it helps to have something else going on. Yeah. While I'm but a specific kind of music, right? There's yes. some there. And so I think study music. Yes. Is kind of a war music. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about your blog. So you have sure. a blog called Wellness Rounds, and you've talked to us about it in class. Can you kind of tell us what you know viewers can find on it? Um, it's so it also is eclectic, a little bit like my music. Um, this started, uh, gosh, it's been seven or eight years ago now. It's been okay. a while. Uh, in response to um, students that I, I was starting to make handouts about how to eat well when you're on a clinical rotation and how to exercise when you're too busy and yeah. cool books I'd read. And, and finally one of them said, you know, why don't you do a blog? And I said, well, I don't know anything about that. And he goes, Oh, I did that professionally. I'll do it for you. So two days later I had a blog up, <laughs> which was great. Um, and I, I try to post at least once a month, but I, a little more often if I'm not too busy and concentrate on, um, things I wish I'd known. So actually, the original title of the blog was going to be Things I Wish Someone Had Told Me Before Medical School and Residency, but that was too long. Yes. <laughs> so I just called it Wellness Rounds. So it is it is about wellness, but it's also about a lot of other things. So you'll see, um, I think physicians have um, social responsibility as well, and I feel really adamant about children uh, not having access to guns and to the gun violence that's plaguing children in our country. So without making it a partisan or political issue, I'm outspoken about reasonable gun laws. Um, same thing for, uh, you know, when I had a student after my embryology lecture who asked me about whether the fetus feels pain, I recognized that that was part of the abortion debate. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a blog trying to explain 
how I think about that. Okay. Um, so there are some what people might view as political, but and perhaps they are political, but they're not partisan. I think that's real important to. I'm not trying to pick fights with people. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit all over the map. So yeah, it kind of goes like my my micro blog, which is on Twitter. Yes. Um, also has a lot of that as well. So some strongly held social opinions I have about protecting children, yeah. um, as well as recipes and yes. cool, interesting things and cartoons and all kinds of things. Yes. I remember after one of your lectures, um, someone went to Trader Joe's and bought, um, Mirepoix. Mirepoix? Mirepoix? Yes. yes, I, t- yes. I know. I may be the only professor anywhere in the United States who teaches about Mirepoix in a medical school lecture. <laughs> yes. So yeah, for your listeners, if they don't know what it is, should we have them look it up or should I tell them? Ooh, mm, I think we should tell them. Okay, all right. They can look up a picture. Look up a picture. <laughs> <laughs> Go to your Trader Joe's or pre- prepare it yourself. You know. Oh, actually, so that was the the goal of the when I taught about it. So mirepoix is basically the basis of all. I would say all cuisine. It's the originally it's French cuisine. Yeah. But it is diced up onions, carrots, and celery. But it's two parts onion to one part carrot to one part celery. Yep. And that's what you saute to start almost any sauce or any stew or anything. Yeah. And then if you go to different cultures, there's sort of the same trio, if you will. Um, So what would it be for you? Yeah. For Indian food, my mom's tried to teach me several times to cook, but it's just... It takes a lot of effort. But to make you Indian always food. everybody starts with onions. Onions oh, yeah. must be like the core food of all human oh, eating. Yeah. But so it can be onions, and for the Trinity, the Cajun Trinity, you substitute uh, green pepper for carrots. Okay. So it's onions, green pepper, and celery. Okay. Um, and that's how you start all the roux and the jambalayas and the gumbos. Yeah. And, yeah. And in Asian cooking, it often has ginger in oh, it yeah. instead. Oh, yeah, that's what it is for Indian cooking. Yeah. So, but the concept is you get these savory things. So anyway, the mir- true mirepoix, which is onions, uh, carrots, and celery, if you have a food processor or a really good knife, you just go to the store on the weekend and you buy those three things. I usually buy bell peppers mm-hmm. as well, but you want things that aren't going to go bad in a day or two. Chop them all up and put them in a Ziploc. Yeah. And then whenever you, you can make canned soup, you throw it in the canned soup. You're making a salad. You throw it on the salad. It's a way to get, if you're not going to actually use it to cook, which you can, you can still use it to add a whole bunch of veggies to anything that you're eating, and it makes it taste better. So that's why I taught people about mirepoix uh, in my lecture. Yes, exactly. Someone had taken a picture of it at um, Trader Joe's. They had something labeled mirepoix in like a in a plastic container (laughs) um, for sale. (laughs) So yeah, that was cool. so we talked a little bit about um, being on Twitter. So you do have quite a Twitter following and you are pretty active on Twitter. Yeah. Um, can you talk more about that? What you kind of feel is a doctor's you know, role, a physician's role in that space? Yeah, I, um, so I do think, and, and, and not everyone has heard this. If you're in college or medical school or anywhere, you know, everyone says, don't get on social media because right. it'll just hurt you. Yeah. But come on. Yeah. We know we're braver than that. So I do think we need to not be stupid. And you need to realize that a screen grab of anything means it's permanent. Right. So you, you need to be professional. But I also think in the world of trolls, and I'll use the word, <laughs> um, and people that are speaking out with really, I mean, I might even say evil thoughts, but certainly not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a professional obligation to stand up and say, you know what, that's just not right. Yeah. And there's no reason you can't do that in um, a social media presence in a professional way um, that makes a difference. And yeah. so I actually encourage people to get on social media. And if you're not sure, don't post it. Right. Yes. Um, I remember one of our classmates had also posted that you were, your, one of your tweets was quoted in an article when the NRA was talking about, right. you know, physicians I think they were saying, this is not your space. Oh, no, it's worse than that. So, yeah, it's not our lane. Not our lane. I I was one of the first two or three physicians that just lost it when I saw that. Physicians should stay in their lane. And it's like, uh, this. it was hashtag, this is our lane, which I think I and a couple other physicians came up with really, really early. Because it is our lane. These are our patients. We're supposed to be advocates. And if there's... You know, if we have laws that allow two-year-olds to or three-year-olds to find the draw, gun in the drawer and there's no consequences and they kill their sibling, we got to change that. Yeah. And 
And it's not a, you know, and I make it very, very clear. It's not about the Second Amendment. It's not about gun ownership. Mm -hmm. This is no different than um, you have to have a license to drive a car. Yeah. It's no different than we try to put kids in car seats in the car. I mean, this is a health, safety, public health issue, not a political issue. And so I, I felt very strongly, and so did a lot of other physicians. And so we very became very active on Twitter. And I think we made a difference. Yeah, I think so too. Those, those articles were floating around Facebook for like, <clears throat> excuse me, for you know the past year or so, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are clicking on that instead of clicking on, you know, quote unquote, fake news or yeah. you know something that is maybe an uninformed opinion. And mm-hmm. so I, yeah, I think it makes a huge difference. Um, what would be your advice to medical students who are, you know, trying to be active on social media, post about things that they're passionate about? Yeah, absolutely, be professional, yeah. and I guess be a little cautious, but but be courageous. So here, here's the bottom line: if you are um, like I am for very sane gun laws, and you're posting very benign, let's think about the data kind of posts and you apply to a residency where they're not going to take you because you said that yeah do you really want to go to that residency right you know so you know be be wise i mean i think that i have a unique platform because i'm a full professor and because um you know i've had enough years and reputation that i can do this so i would tell people at the beginning of their career you have to be a little more cautious just like you would be in a if you walked into a party and you didn't know people, right. you know, you wouldn't walk up to someone and say, hi, I think guns could be sh- controlled. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not the first sentence out of your mouth. Yeah. So uh, be just be a little wise about what you post and when, but also don't be afraid. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard um, a lot of research studies that say that med students should, you know, comment back on things they don't agree with because it makes the people reading that kind of start to question their own beliefs Mm-hmm. Um, if you strongly believe in, you know, something political, maybe you have a professional opinion on something mm-hmm. political, mm-hmm. just, you know, write back in a very yes. calm way and inform people Yeah. because we do have the second we stepped into med school, people have started to look up to us. So we have, you, be, you become part of the profession when you start. Right. And right now there's a, a huge movement, um, about poverty. And I think it's called poor people's campaign is the hashtag. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the medical students in that are being very heard right. about the right of people to eat and have shelter and yeah. some of the laws that have made it difficult for for people to take care of their children. And the medical students are very powerful in that. Yeah. Yes, completely. Um, so kind of related to that, you are one of the medical ethics uh, leaders, I guess, of our small group. Yeah, um, yeah, I teach ethics. Yes. And so can you talk about your involvement with medical ethics and maybe why you're passionate about that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we, for the same reason we were just talking about, there's a lot of things that have emotion behind them. Yeah. Um, that in reality, what they are is ethical dilemmas. Yeah. And I love the way Baylor has done this with the ethics workup. Yeah, we because, all love it. Oh, because yeah. it takes, you know, you get into... You know, if you think around the family table and big disagreement on whatever the topic is, you can yeah. say, well, let's just back up and, you know, I, I actually have my ABCs that, that um, just like for trauma resuscitation. Mm-hmm. And just in a nutshell, the, uh, it's assess. So you basically make sure you have all the data mm-hmm. and what else you need to know. Um, my B is for box, and I'll explain that. Because okay. basically anytime there's a, we could either do this or that, you want to take the Second Amendment that everyone has the right to any gun they want yeah. versus guns should be licensed. Yes. Okay, let's just take that. So that's the either or. Okay. And every dilemma has a either or. But the B for box for me is you've got to think out of the box. Right. What are the other options? Because it's almost always that third, fourth, or fifth option yeah. that ends up being the one that works the best. Yeah. So that's my B. So assess, box, Consider the appeals. So this is how the ethics workup really works: is you appeal to uh, the rights of the patient, and as you know, mm-hmm. and there's a whole list of rights and, and appeals that we consider. Yeah. And what you're doing is just building up this argument that you're, if it's really important to you that the individual has a right, that's going to be a heavy, 
heavy part of your argument, but you're basically listing out and reflecting and thinking about why do I think this is the right thing? Yeah. Then D is decide, mm -hmm. and then E is end. So at the end, you always talk about how you could have prevented it. Yeah. So that's my A, B, C, D, E of ethics okay. workup. I'm but have to the teach end, that to my small group now. The <laughs> end result of that is that you have a framework to actually articulate what the emotions are. Mm -hmm. And to be able to, you know, if anyone ever did debate in high school mm -hmm. or college, that it's that sort of thing. How do you actually put together a coherent discussion that supports your point of view? Yeah. And I think that's so important to have that kind of rational, thoughtful discussion instead of just yelling at each other. Yeah. I completely agree with that. I think the ethics uh, small groups have been a great addition to Baylor's curriculum. So if y'all are thinking about coming to Baylor, <laughs> that would be a great plus. <laughs> um, so I kind of wanted to talk about one of the cases that we talked about in, is that allowed? Yeah. Okay. Because those those these are, are made those up are, cases. Okay, yeah. exactly. Um, so we had a case where, so it was a woman a 29-year-old woman that was coming in with a history of depression, and she was admitted to the hospital because she had this infected cut on her arm. And her psychiatry resident, you know, recognized her from high school and looked her up on Google and found her Facebook profile where she was documenting her hospital visits and seemed to be making quite a big show out of it. So he writes down in her medical record that he thinks she has Munchausen's, which I'll explain, um, and she is self-lobotomizing or cutting her arm so that she can post certain things on Facebook and get attention from people. And so in this small group discussion, we had to make a justified argument for whether doctors should look up their patients on social media and whether that's ethically um, justified to do whether it gives us more information about the patient that we can use to treat them, or maybe it puts, you know, some sort of judgment or preconceived notions in our head that would affect the patient's treatment in a negative way. So this is the case that we had to address and Munchausen's, let me quickly um, butt in to tell you guys, is if you don't know, I know it's becoming more and more well-known. Um, it's a type of mental illness. And so someone is thinking constantly that they have these physical or mental um, disorders. It can be like things from like muscular dystrophy, so they have to you know, have a wheelchair, or it, it does sound like this uh, woman in this case did have Munchausen's as she was inoculating or you know, infecting her own wounds and believing that she has these diseases when she's causing the symptoms herself. There's also a, a new show on Hulu about Munchausen's, and I forget exactly what her name was, but she had literally no illnesses at all. And her mom would force her to get treatments. She had her um, salivary glands get um, Botox so that they would stop drooling. She forced her into yeah, all these kinds of Munchausen things. this is Munchausen by proxy. Yeah, is by what proxy. That's called, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, very rare, by the way. Yeah. So this, it's always scary when you first start teaching people diseases, particularly very rare ones. Yeah. As, as you know, like in the first year of medical school, every time you get a headache, you think you have leukemia. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so we always have to warn people. It's like sometimes it, when you're learning this knowledge and learning about diseases, yeah. there's, a, there's an awkward phase you go into through yeah. where you decide you have it or all your friends have it or something. So I just want to warn everybody. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I mean, that's the first time I'd ever heard of Munchausen's, I think, um, yeah. was during that case and in relation to the show. And so in our, in our case... Her resident looked her up on Instagram or Facebook and kind of saw that she was doing this. And I think in the end, it ultimately affected her treatment. And so I kind of wanted to get your opinion. When is it okay to look up your patient? Oh, interesting. Is that okay? You know, we're in, I think we're in a transition, uh, to be honest. I, and I think probably your group, as most of us, said it's not a good idea to look up people, even their public profile, without them knowing. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of the, the short crux, answer. Short answer. Yeah. Um, but you could argue a lot of different ways. And that's the night. I mean, ethics basically means there's not a true right or wrong. There's always at least mm. two right answers, yeah. sometimes three or four or five. Yeah. And it's really about how, why you think that's the right answer and can you justify it. Yeah. And so um, personally, I don't think we should be looking things up because it, a lot of times it's golden rule, right? I mean, yeah. would you want your physician to look you up online without you knowing it? Yeah, of course not. Probably not, yeah. right? And so that's 
a litmus test sometimes to go through and start that process to think about what's right and wrong. Yeah. But for now, I would say don't look people up unless yeah. they know it. Yeah. I, yeah, that's what our group had decided too, just to like ask for permission. And then if they say it's fine, it's fine if their profile is public. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of a transition, as you said, into, you know, social media is becoming a bigger part of our lives. So. Yes. And it's a great tool. Yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful tool, but it, it like all great tools, it has a, it's double-edged. Yeah. And so you've just got to know the limits of it. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, so what would you say is kind of the biggest problem in medicine right now? What can mm. med students, you know, look forward to maybe addressing in the future as physicians? Boy, <laughs> I actually do have an answer for this. I'm just trying to figure out how to articulate it. I, I think the issues we have in medicine in the United States are different than a lot of places in the world. Yeah. And primarily we are in a, a transition right now um, about the business of medicine and how that relates to the people we're taking care of. Yeah. And I don't think it's different than things that are happening in a lot of parts of our society in terms of, I'm going to say it bluntly, but I don't mean it to be quite this blunt, greed and power versus yeah. care, okay? It's yeah. not. It's never that clear. There's, there's nobody in administration or who's making laws who gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to go make a decision that's going to hurt patients. Right. Nobody, yeah. right? So we're just in a very rapid transition of culture. And part of the, what's happened in that is in, people don't realize the electronic medical record is actually really only about 10 years old in the yeah. United States. And it had, with the change that that has caused is mind-blowing. So yeah. we're, we're just at the beginning of that, and the pendulum's going to swing, and it'll swing back. But I, I think just keeping the patient and what's right for the patient in the center is harder in a context that's this complicated financially and electronically. Yeah. And so that's probably, to me, the biggest dilemma in medicine right now. Yeah. How does that kind of affect your like day-to-day interaction with patients? Well, we all have, sitting at a computer when you're talking to a patient is a very different encounter. Mm -hmm. And I think we underestimate how different that is. Um, So that's probably the single biggest day-to-day change that has happened. And how, how do we go about kind of solving this issue? Like we do have scribes um, who could kind of mediate that Mm -hmm. interaction, um, but is there a better way? Well, actually, most people don't have scribes. Yeah. 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 I don't know the answer to that, and I think it's your generation that's going to solve it. Yeah. Um, But I think what's really important is to articulate the problem Mm -hmm. and to stay focused on that, because the problem with sort of incremental change in in an institution or in a culture, sometimes it's a little bit like the frog that's in the water where you turn the temperature up a degree at a time instead of dropping them in boiling water. You don't realize what's changing until you're way down the road. And so be again, being reflective about what's happening and why is probably the single most important thing. Yeah. Agreed. So if, if med students want to make a difference when it comes to that or Mm -hmm. in any kind of policy, Mm -hmm. how should we go about doing that? That's a real good question. I think you need, there is going to be some training that's going to be needed, but mostly it's just um, questioning and and reflecting. So just because someone says, well, this is how we do it, yeah, doesn't mean that's the right way to do it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so if if you walk in and everywhere you go, the doctor's back is to the patient as they're typing on the computer, and you go, boy, that doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. And you think about it, and you think about it, you may end up implementing a relatively small change that's just to change the angle of the computer so the faces are face-to-face. Yeah. It makes a huge difference for the patients. Yeah. But if you don't have that framework to say, is this okay? Mm-hmm. Can we do better than this? It's never going to change. Yeah. That actually reminds me of something one of my elementary school teachers had taught us. And she was like, you know, I always teach my students not to ask questions, but to question answers. And that stuck like with it. me throughout med school yeah. also. So, Yeah, you need to be like a 
three-year-old again. Why? Yeah. Why? 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 Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that is some of us in med school now, you know, give us the explanation. Yeah. Don't let it go away. Yeah. Don't let it go away. Cause that needs to continue on through your career. Yeah. Keeps your career, um, alive also. Yeah. Um, so I was actually requested by my sister to talk about this. So she's an OBGYN resident, um, mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. I've done an episode with her. Um, that was really nice. And she sent me this article called Resident Wellness is a Lie. And mm, I think um, I need to see that article. I want oh, to see yeah. what it is. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's basically just talking about this kind of disconnect between hospital administration and the people who's, who are actually affected by the hospital's policies. Um, and so wellness is looked at by hospital administration as something they, they need to incorporate to keep people well, to keep people performing well. Um, and it's kind of scoffed at by residents. Um, you know, they're like, what is this wellness concept? We don't really have it. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of address that, talk about resident wellness and is it actually a lie or how can we do better? I think the, um, it's not a lie. Um, wellness is not well though right now and it's getting better. Absolutely. And I will, I'll give a shout out to the ACGME and for people that don't know, that's the organization that's in charge of all the residency training in the United States. They are really working on this and they are changing rules that I think will then have a trickle down effect on, on faculty and, and practicing physicians all over the country. So again, I, I really, this goes back to what I said earlier is one of the biggest issues in medicine, which is this disconnect between the business of medicine and the practice of medicine. Right. Again, not because people are getting up in the morning and saying, I'm going to go make this worse, yeah. but because it's a period of such rapid transition yeah. that we have to realize these unintended consequences of some of the changes. So I guess that's kind of a long answer to to something that maybe I'd sum up by saying everyone is aware there's an issue. There's not clear um, solutions yet. Yeah. And there is a disconnect. And so whenever there's a disconnect, it, it's a little bit like the ethical dilemmas, right? Yeah. What's the data? What are the choices? Yeah. How do you argue for which choice is better? Mm-hmm. Um, and we go from there. And yeah. we just keep trying to move that needle. Yeah, agreed. Um, so in terms of, you know, residency, it was, you said it was a blur for you. It was, you know, you devote pretty much all your time to the hospital that you work at. How, what kind of advice do you have for people, particularly in residency, um, for my sister, maybe, mm-hmm. um, how, do, how does she, you know, make time for things outside of? I think it's the same thing. It's priorities, right? Yeah. And in residency, I would say the priority we minimize the most and should not is sleep. Yeah. Um, sleep and some quiet time, meditation, prayer, whatever it is, even if it's 10 minutes a day, that's truly just stopping. Yeah. Even just walk outside in nature and just let your thoughts fly wherever they want to. Um, but I think if those two things are the things that are the highest priority, um, followed very closely, obviously by family and friends, Mm -hmm. and you try to get some little bit of those every day, um, and self-care. And I, you know, you're not going to be able to eat perfectly and exercise and, you know, every day, but do a little something every day. So if it's just one time having an apple instead of the bagel scone candy, whatever that's in the lounge, give give yourself a pat on the back. You did something self-care. Right. And just again, focus on the positive, like you said earlier, the gratitude kind of idea. So decide the priorities, do it. Keep a list of it. Congratulate yourself when you do it. Yeah, uh, would be my major. That's I think what I'd advise them. Yeah, uh, kind of related to that. Uh, me and my roommate were having kind of an existential crisis last night, and we were talking about you know all of our friends are getting married, they're having babies, they're starting these lives, they're buying houses, and we're kind of in this limbo phase where we're still growing. We're not quite adults yet. We're still in school technically. Um, and so I guess as both a woman and, you know, someone who's been through this, how do you kind of balance those thoughts in your head? Or did uh, you ever feel that way? Oh yeah. I think everyone does. I mean, it's really, you know, people talk about work life balance. Yeah. I actually don't like the term balance because it kind of implies 
you're either one or you're the other and mm-hmm. you're weighing them. So if somehow if you put more life on the balance, it makes work less heavy. Mm-hmm. But that's not the way it works, right? They're, yeah. they're both there all the time. When you choose to do this career, there are some sacrifices, but those sacrifices are being made deliberately yeah. because of what you want, who you want to be and how you want to help others. Yeah. So we need to say that up front. You're, you're making some sacrifices and that's okay. There's lots of very noble things in the world that you make sacrifices to do. But guess what? There's a whole lot of married people in medicine and there's a whole lot of people that have children yeah. and some of them are surgeons and some of them are like really, really busy. Yeah. Again, it goes back to priority management. Yeah. There's always a way to do it. It's not either or. Yeah. And people can find a way to, to do it that works for them. Yeah. So I would tell people it's not worth an existential crisis, <laughs> but it's not easy. Yeah. So I'm not going to minimize it either. Right. Um, but congratulate yourself for picking something that requires a little bit of sacrifice to help others. Yeah. That's a great life. Yeah. And, and finding a partner to do that with who believes that also is a great life and you will. Yeah. So no need to have the existential crisis. Yeah. Duly noted. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just, it's something we all get caught up in when we social media, you get, you know, you get caught up in other people's lives so easily um, you, you see their like cute kids that they're having and you're like, I don't feel like an adult yet. I'm still, you know, dependent on my parents for some part of it. I'm still dependent on, you know, teachers and professors. So it, it's hard, but that's good advice. So kind of, kind of related to that, um, you are a leader in medicine, I would say. And so what is your advice to people who want to be leaders? What makes a good leader? Um, putting the people you're leading ahead of yourself. Mm. Absolutely. Unequivocally. So you have to have a vision. Um, and it's not about, um, your own self aggrandizement, I believe is the word. Um, and that's really hard because it's, you've got to have a healthy ego to be able to, to do this. There's no question, but then you have to care. It's like being a teacher. You have to care more Mm. about your students, right? Mm -hmm. Because how they succeed is how you succeed. Yeah. And I think great leaders, it's the same thing. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, uh, books about leadership. I, my model that I love the most is the servant leader, um, where you really are putting this again in that bigger context of why you're doing it. Yeah. Now that's the big picture. The nitty gritty mm-hmm. is you have to get mentors and sponsors, and they're not the same. Yeah. Sponsors are the people that make sure you get nominated for the committees, make sure you get connected into the things that you need to get connected into. Mentors are really the ones that are helping you guide the bigger picture. And you need both. And you need a list of them in both categories. So there's not like one magic mentor out there that's going to make your career, but you can have a whole little stable of mentors that you go to for different things. And it's perfectly okay to say, listen, I really think I want to be a leader. What does that mean? What should I do? And people say, hey, did you think about this committee that they just put something up? Or an email will come across that they need a medical student to serve on some committee at the school. And they'll send it to you because you asked. Yes. Yeah, you never know what you can get until you ask for it. Right. For sure. So I guess in relation to that, I think a lot of med students at this point in their lives are, you know, thinking about networking. They're looking forward to residency and they're thinking about what do I need to get to that point? How should med students go about networking and you know, getting those sponsors and mentors? Um, so I would think people talk about networking and it is important, but I don't want it, I don't, it shouldn't be that mechanical in a way. You know, networking is like what you do with a computer. Yeah. Um, computers network with each other. Human brings have friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. So I would concentrate more on the relationships. Yeah. It's not. It's not a goal to create a network. Um, it is a goal to have relationships with people, and that may not serve a purpose. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes it's just getting to be friends, uh, or having someone that you can connect with in a way that you can just see who they are and how they are and that's enough right yeah. so in a way if you think about it like when you are meeting friends um, or starting to date someone and there may be kind of a long-term thing you have in mind but you're not doing that to get something out of it right right yeah you're doing that to make the connection and I this is the professional equivalent of that yeah so someone you admire just admire them and just get to know them and yeah. what happens is 
the, the network in the sense that we were talking about it happens. Um, but that's the network's not the goal, the relationships are. Yeah, and that's how you make, I think, meaningful relationships that actually stay for longer than you might need someone for. Um, right. So I think, I think med students get more caught up in that because we're constantly trying to check off boxes. Um, exactly, so. exactly. So that's why it's, I think, backing up away from those boxes and figuring out why you're, you're writing them down in the first place is important. Exactly, yeah. Um, so I think one of, our, one of the things that you've taught us at the end of your lectures, you always have you know, a few minutes of wellness, I would say. Um, and so there was this one quote that you had put in, one of, in your last um, lecture to us, and it was something about a plane, sitting in the back of a plane. <laughs> Can you talk more about that and how it relates to you know, med students, how it related to your life? Yeah, I think that um, it's really, again, the attitude you have um, when you start in your clinical rotations, that it's very easy uh, to sit in the back of the plane yeah. and just kind of watch what's going on, but you're actually there to learn how to fly the plane. Yes. So if you don't get up in the cockpit and say, hey, why'd that light go on? And why, why did you do that? And what was that adjustment about? You're never going to learn how to fly the plane. Yeah. And so it's really an attitude of being excited about what you're learning and staying engaged that makes the biggest difference in the clinical rotations. Yeah. So when, when we do start our clinical rotations in you know, less than a year now for me, um, what is the proper way to go about doing that? Because I think we're constantly trying to balance, you know, I don't want to bother our attending. I don't no, want no, to no. So I, no, 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 okay. we got to get rid of this idea. Okay. So I always tell my students every time we're in the operating room, there's only two people in the operating room that are paying to be there. Yes. It's the patient and the med student. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, you so do true. not have to be, um, I mean, that's part of our job is to train you. It's part of our joy yeah. is to train you. And so you don't have to feel awkward. Yeah. Just be enthusiastic. People yeah. love enthusiasm. Yeah. And if you get a grumpy attending or resident, then go find another one. Because <laughs> yeah. because people in general love enthusiasm. Yeah. So if you read about everything and you're there asking appropriate questions, you're not bothering anyone. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, completely. That's actually really similar to ask the same question to my sister. And she was like, just show that you're interested. And, you know, people are more than willing to teach you what they already know. Um because everyone loves talking about, you know, what they know and what they can. They're excited down. about it too. That's why they picked that specialty. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think we're kind of nearing the end of what I want to talk about. Um, so thank you so much for coming, or for me coming to your home, actually. Uh, no problem. Um, but this has been really great. So thank you for being on the show. Um, do you have any maybe last words? Any? With thoughts of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about wisdom, but you know, it's really hard sometimes to figure out how to, how to stay focused. And a lot of people talk about vision statements and, um, and the importance. And I actually do think they're important, but I think we sometimes uh, water them down with the kind of words mm -hmm. we use. So um, my vision statement, and it has been for a long time, and I've taught your class and I've taught a lot of others, is what I'll end with, which is the only three things you have to know to be a good doctor. And rule number one is do what's right for the patient. Mm -hmm. Always do what's right for the patient. Yes. Rule two is look cool doing it. And rule three is don't hurt anything that has a name. Yeah. So I go back and I say, you know, do what's right for the patient has no, no exceptions, none. Yeah. So if you're an attending, it's whether or not you get paid. If you're a medical student, it's if you, they told you you didn't have to stay, but you have a bond to this patient and they're crying you don't leave, yeah. right? You do what's right for the patient, what you'd want if you were that patient. Um, look cool doing it certainly means um, practice your art. And even more specifically, learn about deliberate practice. So mm -hmm. the difference between deliberate practice and regular practice is kind of best exemplified by musicians. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're, you said you're I've a singer. I've heard of this. Yes, right? I am a singer. So if you take a professional singer versus a really good amateur, uh, and you give them the same piece that they're practicing, the amateur will spend two hours or whatever hour. You can't sing as long as you can do other things. So whatever yeah. the time yeah. is, just going through the whole piece over mm -hmm. and over again. The professional will pick the one stanza that is the hardest, and they will do that 40, 50, 60 times before they go through the whole piece. Yeah. So the same thing, what that means is when you're studying and you hate the kidney, you actually need to study the kidney more. Yeah. 
because that's the deliberate practice. Yeah. It's the things that are not comfortable, that are not easy for you, you need to spend more time on. Yeah. So that's look cool doing it, but it also means don't lose your cool. So this is the professionalism piece. Yeah. And then, so you do what's right for the patient, look cool doing it, don't hurt anything that has a name. So for me as a surgeon, that means don't cut the ureter if I'm taking out the colon, Yeah, obviously. <laughs> but you need to remember that you have a name, your significant other has a name, your institution has a name, your colleagues... So do what's right for the patient, look cool doing it, and don't hurt anything that has a name. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. So I think that's a great place to end because I want to leave everyone with those three thoughts. Um, Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for asking me. Of course. So thanks so much for joining me on today's episode. I know I took a little bit of a different approach with this and I just wanted to sit down and have a good chat with Dr. Brandt. And, you know, I know that I truly left feeling inspired and empowered and I hope you guys feel the same way too. If you have any suggestions, any questions, recommendations, anything like that, go ahead and DM me on Instagram at Cybear, S-A-I-E, bear, like a polar bear. And I would love to hear from you guys. This is how I continue to grow the podcast and produce things that, you know, people really want to listen to. So thank you for joining me and thank you for making this podcast a part of your day, wherever you are.